So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Hey everybody, it's Adam and Jill, and really excited because we're doing something just a little bit different for this episode. We are joined on the phone by Lizzie Sachs, who I met at BookCon while she was doing an interview with our CEO, Steve Potash. Uh, Lizzie writes for Forbes magazine, and she also has the best website I've ever seen, which is the girl with the garlic tattoo. Um, so we kind of hit it off when we were chatting in New York, and we decided we wanted to do a whole fun episode about food and pop culture and the literary connections and, and all sorts of good stuff. So first off, Lizzie, thank you for joining us today. Excited to, uh, to be here. <laughs> and over the phone, anyway. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, over the phone. <laughs> it's, 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 oh, be here in like a cosmic sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we kind of dive into the crux of our whole combining food and stories and stuff, do you just want to give our listeners sort of a, a background about what it is you do and, and what your passions are? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, my passions are myriad, but um, I am a uh, yeah, I'm a freelance writer. I uh, write mostly for Forbes, but also um, for Vice and for uh, Literary Hub. And I also got to do a piece for Eater recently. Um, I'm really uh, fascinated by food. I have a master's degree in food. Um, from NYU, and uh, I've also, yeah, really have always loved everything about stories, so uh, they kind of go together for me. I think there's um, a lot of things that are similar um, about about cooking and, and, and writing and uh, sort of Eating and reading. I don't know. There's uh, a lot of a lot of imagination involved in all of this. How does one get? Yeah, go ahead. You can ask. You. I, I feel like I have to ask. What exactly does a master's in food look like from a like <laughs> curriculum perspective? Okay. So yeah, um, NYU is one of the few schools um, in the country, although there are starting to be more. Um, that has a food studies program. So food studies is uh, the academic study of food. So that's um, everything from food systems and politics. Um, like the, the program was founded by um, actually a prolific author herself of nonfiction, uh, Mary Nethel, uh, who wrote Food Politics and a whole bunch of other um, books. And she... Uh, is one of the people who kind of got this conversation started saying like, hey, we should pay attention to what food is doing because it touches everything else. So um, that program is really interdisciplinary um, and you can kind of do whatever you want with it. I ended up studying 
concepts of kind of like food and myth making. So um, I wrote a paper about uh, garlic as a magical object during the Black Plague and how um, historical like lines between science and magic didn't really exist. <laughs> and uh, did another story, uh, uh, or not story, another paper about um, uh, this this soup dumpling uh, mega chain that's very big in Asia and has a few locations in the United States, and they're called Din Tai Fung. Um, and I ended up comparing their branding in Los Angeles and Hong Kong um, and talking about, like, why they're the same. And, like, uh, another one of my papers, uh, which is actually very relevant to this discussion, um, is uh, I did a, a – and I actually presented this one at a conference – um, I did a paper about how um, the Game of Thrones fandom has like a whole sub fandom just devoted to food from Game of Thrones, um, and like what that's about and why someone would latch onto that so much. Can't confirm. I can't confirm I, I was, that. I was gonna say I have questions about that, but I was gonna let Jill take the floor because <laughs> she has a very particular. Ethic. Right. Well, no. So. uh I am very much in favor of Queen Sansa, Queen of the North. And um, I'm in one of the Reddit sub, uh, subreddits about uh, Sansa. And throughout the entire final season, everyone posted lemon cakes. Like, everyone was making lemon cakes every Sunday. And you would get different recipes. And someone talked about how she made cocktails. She made cocktails um, for, like, the past, like, several seasons. She would make new cocktails every Sunday mm-hmm. for a new episode, and I'm like, please write a book. Just write a book just on Game of right. Thrones cocktails. Well, there is a Game of Thrones cookbook, first of all. Yes, there is, yes. Uh, um, and that is one of the many food products, or food-related products, yeah. that is licensed by HBO under a Game of Thrones umbrella. I, I, um, that, there have been yeah, go restaurants, ahead. all kinds of... Oh, uh, sorry. Um, there, there have been theme restaurants, there's uh, Game of Thrones wine, there's Game of Thrones beer, there's uh, there was a Game of Thrones promotional food truck in New York and Los Angeles when the first season came out. What? With food from Tom Colicchio? Seriously? Yeah. That's amazing. We did have the wine and the beer. Well, we found we found one of the wines and two of the beers, I think, from yeah. when we had a when the um the last season premiere, the night of that, we did have we did have some of the alcohol. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that. I was actually, I was in Los Angeles for the premiere of the last season, and uh, a coworker of ours and I went to a bar that was doing an entire Game of Thrones-themed evening. Like, there was a watch party there, which was really, really cool. But they everything they had there was Game of Thrones-style food and, and drinks and things like that. And, like, what do you think the connection... Like, why is that one of the, such a, a major connections for people when it comes to food and stories? Like, why do you think that the ability to take on the, those foods and drinks as a fan of, of these stories only increases your connection with it? Yeah, well, so I think for, especially for, for fantasy stories, this is a really um, uh, emotional thing. Like... Um, I don't know. Like, as a card carrying nerd, I have played my my share of like live action role play games, and I can tell you that 
the vast majority of people are not ready for that level of commitment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, like, something like food, though, is like, oh, yeah, I could, like, make up a recipe for this thing that's, like, from this fandom I care about. And that is... That's kind of like a low barrier to entry, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a kind of a, a thing that gives you a connection and a sense that you're channeling this story and this this uh, imagined place, but like without having to go like all the way there. <laughs> it's sort of like dipping your toe into cosplay almost. Like, without right. making yeah. the, you know, because I see, even this morning I saw there was one of the million cosplay type, like, Comic-Con things and all these images of these astoundingly intricate costumes that I would never be able to make. But for those particular mm-hmm. fandoms, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I need a, I need a lemon tart. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. Well, and I wonder how much of it is that, especially with fantasy, um, you the food is something you can also you can like tie to the world that you know. Because I know the Game of Thrones cookbook um, talks about how some of the recipes are taken from like medieval England. Like these were recipes yeah. that existed and then weren't adapted. Same with like say the birdie bots from Harry Potter. Like everyone knows jelly beans and then she just sort of added a slight twist to it. So it's something that is recognizable, but the fantasy world brings a different element to it, but we can still tie it to our own world that we know. Exactly. And like um you know, another thing that's kind of fun about a world like Game of Thrones or, um, or like, uh, in, what is it called? Like, The Name of the Wind, you know, Patrick Rothfuss's mm-hmm. book, is that they also get to decide which things grow where in a fantasy world. What that means is that you get entire, like, imagined cuisine mm-hmm. sometimes. You, um, something else, not about fantasy, and that you said you wrote a whole article about food as, like, a a symbol of of hope as well, correct? Well, so actually, the the paper I wrote was about food as a symbol of hope and therefore nostalgia in Game of Thrones and how um, that sort of leads to a performance of nostalgia within fandoms. But I also wrote an article for Literary Hub about uh, sort of the flip side of that, which is the fact that sort of the, the lack of food in modern science fiction points very determinedly toward some pessimism about climate change. That's, I never really considered that before, but fantasy, there has a lot of food and feasts. Sci-fi, not so much. That's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, science fiction. It's always like the like the food, um, like, like the the like pills, like, a, like the pills, or there's a scarcity of food, or yeah, huh? Yeah. So there, and, and this has been a thing very consistently since I, I don't know, like maybe the, the like it maybe started around like the, the like eighties, but even if you go all the way back to the fifties, there were some like inklings of this even in in like Ray Bradbury's work 
Um, and yeah, but like the majority of like sixties or like fifties, sixties sci-fi um, imagines a world with like just such extraordinary industrial agriculture that everybody has everything they could possibly want to eat at all times. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking now. I'm thinking about like all the dystopia I've ever read, and it is like so much. We relate so much of um, like potential horrible things that could happen to our world to a scarcity of food. Like mm-hmm. the, in so many of these yeah. books, it's you know one of the main driving factors is the fact that no one can find food that they can eat. Yeah. <laughs> I, so like I feel like all three of us like sitting here just like thinking like wow that's which is great for podcasting. Everyone knows that. That's but, great. Yeah. No. Yeah. Just silence. So people think. Yeah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah, it's really wild how much this is a, a, a like a noticeable trend, and how different it is from again those like, like this early science fiction where you have say, um, it's, have either of you ever seen the movie Forbidden Planet? Mm, no, I have not. No, we neither of okay. us have. For, Forbidden Planet is a movie from the nineteen sixties. And it's a sci-fi retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest. In, in the Forbidden Planet, there's a character named Robbie the Robot. And Robbie the Robot can make literally anything in literally any quantity that you ask for, for at any time. It's like a cloudy with a chance of meatballs situation. <laughs> Completely. And so what, like, what ends up being the... Does, does Robbie end up being pivotal to the the plot or is it just that that's especially but he's like i think a really interesting sign of like what the kind of like there's a scene in the movie where where a um one of the astronauts uh like you know they're on this uh, this new planet so he comes up to to robbie and he's like can you make me whiskey and Robbie's like, cool, how many gallons? Oh, that's not the right way to measure that. <laughs> so, in addition to, you know, I talked about, you know, Game of Thrones, and um, you know, we briefly kind of mentioned some of the stuff with, like, Harry Potter, but, like, what are some of the other stories that revolve around food that either have caught your attention in the past, or you studied, or just, I guess, like, what are some of the other... Um, sort of feasts or lack thereof mm-hmm. in in stories that mm-hmm. you think about yeah there's so many ways to go with that um i mean as far as things that i've gotten to write about um i actually did a piece for vice um last october um about anthony bourdain's uh hungry ghost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is of course the, the final thing he published um in that food is a uh an engine of horror Food, every single story in it is a allegory about how food can, uh, yeah, really create bad situations. And whether that's a um, a rich man with an unnatural craving for horse meat, or a or like somebody who gets uh, gets punished by a monster for not feeding a beggar, um, there's a uh, the, the book is really fascinating because everything it's pointing out is essentially like 
treating your fellow man and your food with respect is going to help you every single time. That's really interesting, especially knowing, you know, what we know now about, you know, Anthony Bourdain and, and, you know, tragically passing away. Like, it's interesting to, to think about the fact that someone who was so ingrained in the food world and the food culture could look at food both ways as both a, a sense of joy and also a potential, um, you know, potential cause of harm and danger. It's a really beautiful book. I really um, recommend it. Actually, I just heard that it's getting adapted, so that's exciting. All right. Um, like but for, for TV? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, like there, there's a story in there about um, like a, a guy who suddenly, with no explanation, like acquires a second mouth on his stomach, and that and like no longer can eat himself, but this starving mouth on his stomach is like talking and like there's uh, and like demanding uh, food. It's almost like. If, if Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors like just was, like suddenly <laughs> was a part of your body, and like there, I think there's something there too about the, like the fact that I don't know about like lack of control and how food can be a source of both like joy and wonder and also stress and uh, and bad health and like you name it. And there's all kinds of things. Do you remember stories from kind of when you were growing up that you you remember fondly about, like, either scenes or things set around food? Like, some examples to me that I always think of is in Chronicles of Narnia, there's these Turkish delights. And I specifically, oh, yeah. like, they are not good for him. <laughs> and yet I still remember being like, man, I got to get my hands on some of those Turkish delights. Like, are there stories from you know like book like is this something you always were passionate about and if so like are there other stories that you remember specifically the food scenes jumping out at you you know it's really interesting because the answer is kind of no mm-hmm. i started to connect to these things um later i was always really interested in food there, there's a note in my um in, in like my baby books that my parents kept for like the first year of my life or whatever um, that says, teens interested in people food. <laughs> um, and so this is very much always something I've been interested in, but like, I was always interested in them sort of separately. Um, and then, I don't know, I started to get more into it in high school. I watched a lot of food movies. Uh, I really recommend Tom Popo if you can ever get your hands on a copy. It's a, um, bizarre Japanese movie from the 1980s uh, that focuses on a woman who is trying in vain to run a ramen shop by herself. Impossible to describe (laughs) because it's so, like, quietly out there. But, like, it's a really fascinating, like, meditation on food and uh, eating and what we're doing when we do that. And... Um, like, you know, I, I watched that and I, I got, uh, into, um, food from another perspective when I read, um, uh, like Water for Chocolate, mm-hmm. um, which is this fabulous novel by Laura Esquivel, um, that, 
uh, takes place during the Mexican Revolution and is about a woman who she's the youngest of three sisters. And according to tradition, it is supposed to be her job to essentially not get married, live at home for her whole life, and take care of her mother when her mother is elderly. Interesting. That becomes a problem very quickly. Um, but it, it, the reason the book is really fabulous is because of the way that they write about food and how every chapter starts with a recipe and how she, the character has essentially culinary magic that she has no control over and that just sometimes happens when she gets very emotional for whatever reason. Speaking of magic and food and things like that, this isn't even from a book originally. Well, originally it's a book, but um, all I'm thinking of right now is the scene from Hook where they have like the uh, make like the make believe food fight <laughs> and i remember having as a kid like a visceral reaction to that like when it finally became real i was like i mean it, it, i looking back like half the food looks like it's made out of play-doh now but it like it's the scene i remember most from that whole movie is when they're and it's kind of like sort of a, a like encapsulating a lot of this whole conversation it's these kids that don't have anything, but they're believe they're making believe that they mm-hmm. have this massive feast. Mm-hmm. And it just, I don't know what it is. Like it's, you're talking about these stories with food is centered around them. And like, that's the one that comes to my mind. Like immediately is hook and, and watching Robin. It's probably because Robin Williams is in it, but probably. yeah, that, that jumps out to me. Like, I always think about Alice in Wonderland and the tea cakes and the eat me and the drink me. And, like, okay, I will I will fully admit to this. I'm almost 40, and I still, when I get, like, certain hostess cupcakes or, like, little the little cakes, <laughs> I will still have this moment of, like, thinking about Alice. <laughs> because I think it's just such a, like, connection of magic and food. I'm, I'm almost 40, and every time I'm, like, just thinking about Alice. Oh, yeah. And I think that th- th- there's a reason that there's, that you know, people who have uh, really connected this in that, like, food is magical. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's my favorite thing. I never knew that about Jill. And now I'm, From now like, on, every time he sees me and he's any kind of, like, hostess something or whatever, he's going to be I'm like... I'm just going to start giggling. Yeah. Well, and then there's also, um, there's a bunch of books that they have taken a certain type of food or an idea of a food and made them into so much more and there's there's two that I'm thinking of specifically one is Gingerbread by Helen Oyeyemi which I think you and I might have talked about in New York but it's this book that tells all of these uh, interlocking stories about this magic of gingerbread which has taken on so many different uh, ideas and you know have played such a different role in all these various fairy tales. Um, and then the other one is uh, Hide and See by, oh man, I'm blanking, who wrote Wicked? Uh, uh, Gregory Maguire. Gregory Maguire. So Hide and See is basically the story of the Nutcracker. And like that, I just go back and I think about how like this story that is, you know, now centuries old about like the Nutcracker and then turning into a prince and like, all of that came, and, like, I still kind of on the same lines with Jill when she looks at Hostess Cakes. Like, when it's Christmas time and where I'm at my parents' house and they have, like, a little nutcracker out next to, you know, the Brazil nuts and all the different stuff, like, all I think about is that I bet that comes to life 
and that's entirely because of the actual like the nutcracker that somebody wrote about one day like are there other stories that you can think about um that you know food has turned into taken on like a much bigger part of our society because of the stories that have been written about them I guess the the place where my brain immediately goes is not so much uh, fiction as is branding. Every brand is a story. And food marketing, I think, is also really fascinating because of what it's trying to say about whatever its product is. Like, um, I've been doing some research on the history of Jell-O recently. Nice. Uh, that is fascinating for many, many, many reasons down to, like, the fact that jiggly desserts were the height of Victorian excess. Um, like, if you had, like, a, a intricately carved jello mold type thing on your table, you had made it. And then, later on, you know, when Jell-O became such a normal, like, cheap-to-produce thing, you know, they had to find ways to make it to say something, right? Mm. And to get people to buy it. And so they had all kinds of uh, messages about, like, what a wonderful thing this is to have on your table and how... Uh, like if this will make you as a homemaker like look so cool <laughs> no that actually reminds me of a lot of the the things that happen in Mad Men about the various marketing campaigns they come up with around food and yeah a lot of very similar things happen like when they introduce the twin pops and they're like who wants to eat popsicles in the winter time and they have to come up like figure out a way to sell this um and the, the sort of story that they come up about popsicles, yeah. Yeah, or like the, the scene in Mad Men with, um, where they finally figure out how to market beans. Yes. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. And, and how they're, they're like, what? How do we make this thing sexy? Right. There's nothing there. Well, even like in real life, like ad marketing, I was, I'm just thinking about like, Growing up, we'd always see those commercials like "Choosy Moms Choose Jif" or like "Kid Tested, Mother Approved." Like using basically, it's like almost like guilt tripping parents into being like, "I mean, if you care about your children, you're gonna choose this type of type of peanut butter." The irony ah. being that Jif has a ton of sugar in it and not the most healthy thing in the world. But like, it is. It's like eat food marketers tend to use our connections to like family and the stories that that tells to want to make us buy their product. Right, like larger cultural stories. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's, uh, I mean, a myriad of examples there down to the fact that Be uh, that Betty Crocker is a fictional character. <laughs> yeah, and um, I think Aunt Jemima as well, maybe? Yep, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah. Well, Aunt Jemima has some historical context. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the, the yeah. actual, yeah. like, character. Yeah. Well, like, that's, that's like a whole other conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah just... That is a whole other conversation. <laughs> we, we could have that conversation yeah. for a while. Um, well, on a less 
serious and, and potentially racist note, there's, <laughs> there's also the Keebler Elves and yeah. Snap, Crackle, and Pop, which I'm almost certain <laughs> all of those are made up and not real. Um, so kind of in keeping with the thought of food and, and stories, like what are some of your favorite food memoirs? I know we ta- ta- talked about Anthony Bourdain's yeah. writing a little bit, but what are some of the memoirs that you really... So I, I haven't read any that are um, are especially recent. Um, although I have just picked up one that I'm excited to um, to take a look at. I have uh, barely cracked it open. I just got it this weekend, but it's called To Drink and to Eat, um, and it's actually a graphic memoir um, about uh, about French cuisine. Um, apparently, um, it's the whole sort of McCarthyist thing that happened with American comics just didn't happen in Europe. So European comics are, uh, you know, going in every direction. And this, this book is like a cookbook and a memoir. So I'm really excited to, to take a look at that. Um, I also um, really... Um, one of the first books that got me into food is now considered pretty problematic, but um, at the time was a very uh, formative um, food memoir, and that's, um, it's called Heat. That's by Bill Buford, who used to write from The New Yorker, um, and was a really um, intense exploration of Italian cuisine and uh, what it's like to be a line cook and, and uh, all kinds of things like that. And it's really uh, beautifully, beautifully written. But like a lot of the biggest food memoirs that um, have uh, come out in the, you know, the past uh, 10, 15 years is exalting some values that are not... Uh, really celebrated by the food world anymore hmm. well um can you kind of expand on that like what for people yeah, who might not absolutely. be aware the book uh th- that particular book um is uh but, but also uh blood bones and butter by gabrielle hamilton and also um even kitchen, kitchen confidential by anthony bourdain there's a, a whole bunch more but um there's a uh, also another memoir. I'm not. I'm blanking on the name, but, but it's about um, Marco Pierre White. Um, and a lot of these books are saying like, "Isn't kitchen culture cool? Isn't it awesome that it's so gritty and dark and all of us are doing drugs?" And like, whether they're saying that intentionally, that's and that, very much kind of the vibe. Because yeah, that that was sort of like Anthony Bourdain's yeah. thing, right? Like he was thing. very, it's like a rock star of food, sort of a persona. Right. And he actually was interviewed, and I mentioned this in the article that I, I wrote about Hungry Ghosts. Um, he was interviewed on Seth Meyers once, and he mentioned how he really regrets the fact that Kitchen Confidential gave him that reputation because he would have people just coming up to him at book signings and handing him a baggie of drugs. <laughs> wow. Okay. Joe, does that yeah. happen to you? That has never happened to me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's like someone who 
everyone knew was a recovering addict. Yeah. Yeah, that's not great. But food memoirs are also, you know, beautiful and have so much to say about sort of the same kind of things I was getting at with uh, food and fantasy about how food, like, keeps us going, like, mentally along along with physically. There's a growing group of, like, comic book cookbooks that I'm really interested in. There's not very many of them yet, but, like, the one I just mentioned from from France, and there's um, a... Uh, there's a book called Cook Korean that's really fabulous by uh, this woman, Robin Ha, and uh, Amanda Cohen, who runs Dirt Candy in New York, um, has, uh, a, has a cookbook of the same name that's, uh, that's basically a graphic memoir um, about how she opened that restaurant and like what it's like to run a high-end vegetarian restaurant in New York. Mm-hmm. And like there's so... Uh, I don't know. I think there's a lot of value in just telling real stories of, about about food from whatever uh, perspective. Well, and I think it's also a great way. You know, we talk a lot on our podcasts about diverse authors and diverse cultures and things like that. And I think food memoirs, especially if you go out of your way to find food memoirs by people who don't look like you, like it can be a nice introduction to various cultures as well absolutely um and you know there's nothing that's going to there's no better communicator than food and stories and there's no better way to understand somebody's somebody's culture than to eat and learn about their food i have a very very important question for you to kind of finish this out um so get ready because this is the heavy stuff of all of the kind of fantasy meals and things, whether it's Game of Thrones or anything else, what is kind of the meal you would most want to have that doesn't sort of exist in the real life? Okay, what if it kind of exists? Well, I mean, it, okay, it can it can sort of exist. Like I, you know, like if you wanted to say like hot pies bread that he cooks in <laughs> Game of Thrones, like in theory that does exist. So I, that I will I'll let you do that. So whatever it is that kind of sparked. You imagine, like, you know, the Harry Potter stuff, all that didn't exist, but now it does because there's... Yeah, you know, well, places. so I guess my immediate thought is that I go to Heston Blumenthal. Mm-hmm. Um, Heston Blumenthal is this amazingly weird uh, British chef who has had a whole bunch of British TV shows um, and who has a, a couple of restaurants, notably The Fat Duck, which has had multiple Michelin, Michelin stars for... A long time um he takes food from stories and food from history and turns it into high-end cuisine oh man and had an entire television show about that that is amazing it's so cool um and i just really want to have somebody make me meat fruit so to explain meat fruit is something that Hester Blumenthal found in like a Tudor cookbook and has recreated in his restaurant and you take what it, the way he does it is he makes uh, like a, a liver mousse and then he um, wraps it 
in a uh, in a jelly, forms it into sort of spherical shape, and that jelly is orange flavored and looks orange. And he sticks a little like leaf into the top, and suddenly you have what looks like a tangerine, but it's not a tangerine. Okay, I'm literally, I, if people who are listening, you need to look up meat fruit. I literally looked it up as you were talking about it. This is insane. It's amazing. It literally huh. looks like a tangerine. It does look like a tangerine. Huh. And, and this is something that he got from, like, real tutor recipes. Like, people were doing this in the medieval period. Medieval cooking is, like, so wild and out there. Um, I, that's where my mind goes. I'm really interested in in like taking food from stories or food mm-hmm. from the, the past and turning it into a modern context. This um, this sort of reminds me of uh, one of the places on my bucket list is to do the um, some a vegetarian doing the vegetarian uh, tasting when uh, Noma does it um, and they kind of do, you know, for people who aren't familiar, the, Noma or is it Numa? I don't know if I'm saying it right. Noma. 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 Yeah, they, they kind of, they're one of, like, routinely voted, like, one of the best restaurants in the world, and they do a different menu every season. And they take incredibly modern takes on all sorts of stuff. But they kind of do the same thing where, like, they'll create, um, like, ladybugs or beetles out of caramel or taffy and like they spend like hours and hours making these things that are designed to sort of tell a story with the meals and that's what this is reminding me of i can't stop looking at this meat fruit this is blowing my mind it's so cool right like and he had a whole television show about this where he would like he did a fairy tale episode and on his fairy tale episode he like took uh he also liked to trick people into eating things they're uncomfortable with eating um and so he took chicken testicles which look like giant beans he colored them various colors and then he dressed them with like pea tendrils and all kinds of beautiful things and it was jack and the beanstalk okay that's kind of a nightmare but i also sort of love it (laughs) right this it's dinner by heston i'm just going to give a plug to a place that isn't has no connection with us this is this website is amazing. There's so many wild things on here. Yeah, this was the right answer. You you got this right. Agreed. <laughs> My God. Okay. All right. I don't know that we're going to get any better than this. Okay, so uh, we will need to bring you back on to talk food more and more often because this was so much fun. But just in general, where can people find you if they want to see your writing or kind of get some some more sort of updates on on you and what you do yeah so my website is uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show uh, is the girl with the garlic tattoo.com i do have a garlic tattoo it does predate the website um <laughs> <laughs> and um that's also my instagram handle um so yeah i'm the girl with the garlic tattoo there and uh yeah, I'm uh, working on a new piece for Vice right now, so that should be up soon. And um, also uh, continuing to write for Forbes. Uh, my most recent story there actually is a review of uh, Marcus Samuelson's new audio cookbook. Um, 
for, uh, for Audible, which I just recommend in every conceivable way. Um, the Red Rooster Cookbook is uh, the book that it's based on and is a really beautiful love letter to Harlem. But the, um, the audio version is called Our Harlem and is more focused on the story as opposed to the recipes. There are still recipes in it, but not as many. And it's a real testament to like what an audiobook can do hmm. that you couldn't pull off on a page. Interesting. That is really, really cool. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we could do this all day. We really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. It's my, like, uh, absolute nerd shit. (laughs) Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.